When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Books Boys, live from the Grand Library, the Dean and PJ. It's PJ. Hello there, everyone. I'm the Dean, and we are the Books Boys. The one and only. Unique. This is this is the Books Boys show. Get it? Buy it? Books. Books. They're not quite sure what it's all about, Dean. Do you? Books. Keep it's thinking a of tricky one. You know, people, people stop me in the street when I'm wearing my delicious Books Boys t-shirt, and they say... Oh, I, I like the alliteration, but I don't understand what the words mean. What, yeah, are, the, what are the books? You know, I like they the thought low. I was doing some like some accounting, you know, my, with my bookkeeper or something. They, they didn't understand. Yeah, they like the logo, guys. Dean is wearing a T-shirt, and we'll say it's a smashing T-shirt. You guys can also get one. You can indeed. Um, we should actually explain. You can get a Books Boys T-shirt um, on the top tier of our Patreon. Um, yeah. And while, while while we're mentioning it, let's just explain. So you, hmm. you get you get your monthly books boys show, and you love it, and that's grand. Hmm. Um, but if you want more, you can go to patreon.com/booksboys. Not only do you get the main show a day or two early, oh, yeah. but you also get the Caper Captains, the Playboys, oh. Renaissance Renaissance. Oh. On higher tiers, you can even tell us which books to read or get yourself a free T-shirt. So much content, so little time. So guys, we've got already six Shakespeare episodes. We've got um, uh, we've got one special Renaissance Renaissance episode, which we'll talk about in a second, and a few more to come very soon. Uh, Caper Captains, we've got, and we have got. Oh, and don't forget, we have got uh, from your archives, uh, Dean. Some special we've got the episodes. interviews from the vault. That's right. We've got musician yeah. interviews from the vault. Um, there's one poetry piles up there that we did with uh, with Sunny from the Written Word. Um, nice. very soon there's going to be a special we can talk about it now we didn't want to talk about it last month there's going to be a special film fellows uh, coming oh. very soon oh. so that'll be the first in a series of film book episodes we'll be talking about and we'll have two special guests Dean, right yeah we're gonna have a crossover show with the uh, two chicks talking flicks podcast so that's going to be very very interesting and um that's going to be coming out very very soon um probably in the next week or so um, so yeah so much so much content guys so buy, it, buy it books and it'll be the book lads against the uh, film growth so who see who will win this battle well, talking about but guys i have to warn you go to booksboys.com go to patreon.com slash booksboys but never go to the literature they are the enemy they are here to subvert and they are trying to take over so avoid the literature Literally, the arc enemies. We don't need it. We don't need the it. dark counterparts of um, 
of folks boys that's shadowy it. We, could, we could do without that i think we could do without that we could do without that so then, this week uh, this month we are joined in the webcam chat by a little ballerina oh there's so this there we go get involved hey. in that if you can which you, you you can't pj how are you i'm doing great yeah how's it going with you I'm great. I'm great. I'm loving doing some of our for our bonus shows and uh, enjoying that. Got yeah. some books to talk about today. Indeed. Shall indeed I start? Do. Yeah, go ahead. So you start. So what did cool. what was the first book you read this month? Um, I wanted to continue with my little trend from last month, where I, hmm. I read Pride and Prejudice. You may remember. I so I do. said I promised a Jane Austen this month, and I delivered twofold. So oh. first, I read Sense and Sensibility. Hmm. Now, this is 1811, so this is before Pride and Prejudice. This is Jane Austen's first book. The author at the time was just listed as a lady. It didn't say who she was. Actually, she never said who she was in her books. Her her future books then all just said by the author of Sense and Sensibility. So you never got a book with Jane Austen's name on it. Is that right? Okay. Any particular reason? Did she not want the fame? Um... I mean, she was still making money for the books to an extent. So I guess that side of things was fine. Uh-huh. Uh, it was very difficult for women writers. I mean, at the time. Yeah, I forgot about that. Of course, yeah. You know, I, I guess they knew she was a woman. So I don't really understand why the need for anonymity. Maybe it was frowned upon. Uh, Perhaps, yeah. I, I, I mean, know. like, I mean, I don't think George, um, George Ailey didn't start writing yet to another few years. So what, until quite uh, like 50 years later so. Yeah, Bond's sisters won right for another ten years at least. So I mean, she was really not the first of a kind, but there weren't too many women authors. Well, the thing is, the time. thing about you know Jane Austen is we're talking you know early eighteen hundreds. This it's early stuff. It's it's earlier than most of the other um, kind of what you would think of as contemporaries. She she did come yeah. first, and I do have to ask, is she the first great novelist? Mm. Okay, well I don't know because. Well, we, we have some earlier novels, of course, but I think she's the first big one that's still remembered and widely read. She's the mm. earliest kind of lasting great novelist. Well, she's maybe the first kind of novelist who um, who you read for several books. You know what I mean? Like because of several books, not like yeah, you, know, yeah, you read yeah. Diana Defoe just for Robinson Crusoe, even though he wrote a few other ways. You read uh, Fielding for uh, Tom Jones, mainly. And, yeah, um, that's that's what I mean. But people are still reading almost all of Jane Austen's works, if exactly, not all. Yeah, so know. I mean, yeah, almost all of them. And I think you're going to talk about the the least popular one after this as well. So I'm interested about that. Mm-hmm. But tell me about Sense and Sensibility. What what were your impressions so, of this? Of I this tell you what, I liked it. Uh, I liked it a little bit more than Pride and Prejudice. Okay. Um, I'll be honest, because Pride and Prejudice I thought was overrated. Um, hmm. The problem with Pride and Prejudice was the first half nothing really happened and then it picked up in the second half this one it's the exact opposite it starts out a lot better and then it loses its way oh no so there needs to be some combination to to kind of get it right you know those i don't know what was going wrong but it lost me in the second half here's the premise we have these two uh, sisters marianne and eleanor and they have um they have a kind of a stepbrother, okay? Mm. And what happens is the very thing that they're afraid of happening in Pride and Prejudice, the dad dies and they don't have any money to inherit. So that's the, the fear from Pride and Prejudice was actually already realized in Sense and Sensibility. Okay, and of okay. course, the brother, you know, originally he says, well, I mean, I guess I should give them some money and he wants to give them, you know, a thousand pounds each. And mm. then his wife says, well, 
yeah, thousand pounds each would be great. So would five hundred pounds each. That would be almost even better than giving them a thousand pounds each, you know. Mm. And then he says, "Yes, I think five hundred will be more than enough." And then she says, "You know what would be even better than giving them five hundred? And it just whittles <laughs> down and and down. And oh no, he says, oh they can hardly <laughs> expect more. And then he says, "Why why don't I just give them fifty pounds here and there? You know when they need it." And she says, "Yes, that would be great." Uh, however, <laughs> to be sure, I think there was no there was no idea of you giving them money at all, you know. And then eventually he gives them nothing, <laughs> so so they end up um, essentially homeless and penniless, you know. All right, okay, yeah. So a lot of a lot of Victorian novels are about that too, right? Even though this is uh, pre-Victorian, there seems to be a big thing regarding the Industrial Revolution and just like people being so insecure about money, right? Because I read this a lot, and you tell me because you read more than I do. Uh, of 19th century British literature. Like a lot of these themes are out there, right? right? Like the Wilkie Collins books, um, the Wilkie, Wilkie Collins mm-hmm. book, uh, No Name. I mean, it has, sounds like it has the exact same premise. Yeah, I mean, it is just this underlying premise in this this genre and this, this kind of time period um, because most of these books... So Dickens was interesting that he wrote about poorer people. Most of these books, they're writing about richer people. Mm. But even the richer people, they seem to be always afraid that they're going to lose it like at any moment. You know, yeah, so it, they big, never seem to feel very secure with it. So there's like a big underlying fear, isn't there? And like yeah, 19th century and you can literature. See, you can see why. You know, these girls grew up, as you say, just like no name. You, you grew up essentially, not necessarily rich, but comfortable. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, your dad dies and you're homeless and penniless. Like, mm. that, it seems to happen very, very easily. Mm. So I, I understand the fear, you know. And of course, in that time period, you know, your dad was dying when he was like 40. So, you know, by the time you're 20, you're homeless. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, totally. So it's it's pretty rough. You know, it's it's bad. And in the end, he says, well, I'm not going to give them any money, but I'll just help them. You know, they can stay with us for a while. Um, but her, his wife isn't nice to them. So they eventually have to move out. And he says, well, we'll help them move. That will be our charity. We'll help them move. Then they move too far. And he says, well, we can't even help them move then because they're going too far. <laughs> so in the end, he does nothing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He just kicks them out, basically. I forgot. So, and so what's the point of the what's the point of the story in the basis? So it sounds kind of very depressing, to be honest. Doesn't well, sound like the kind of book I would like to read. That's the intro, but then let's be honest. What's the point of the story? Both girls fall in love. It's a, it's a double love story. Ah, it's a double love story. Of course it is. So Marianne, um, she falls in love with Willoughby. Mm. And it's just this gentleman, you know, they do a little bit of courting. Um, they spend some time together. Very, very interesting. If you wanted to date someone, you essentially had to go to their parents' house and stay with them for a month, you know, and see that if you made any connection with one of their daughters, you know, and then <laughs> leave again and write some letters. Very, very bizarre. But yeah, so a weird time, right? Marianne falls in love with Willoughby and Eleanor falls in love with Edward, who <laughs> turns out to be a kind of semi-relative type thing. But basically what happens is Neither gentleman is true. Hmm. So the main the main storyline here is that um, neither gentleman is actually faithful, and it turns out that you know they're actually both engaged to other people. Hmm. So there's a double story, but neither sister tells each other or the mum. So they're both going through like a similar ah, right. So they're uh, both but, going but through no one... a, a similar turmoil, but they don't want to talk. They don't want to mention it was this upsetting because they would help each other out 
Exactly. Now, at one point, Marianne is so in love and so, you know, wrought, she can't sleep. Marianne would have thought herself very inexcusable had she been able to sleep at all the first night after parting with Willoughby. She would have been ashamed to look her family in the face the next morning had she not risen from her bed in more need of repose than when she lay down. So, you know, you've got to have the the kind of tragic romance. You know, you you can't get a good night's sleep when you're in love. You can't indeed. And I suppose that's what uh, made this book a bestseller, right? Because that was, I mean, like people still love these romantic extreme kind of stories and yeah if, if the book would just start off if the book would just leave there with oh they have no money how are they gonna how are they gonna survive it would become a different kind of novel wouldn't it or if it's the kenjin kind of thing yeah and one of the gentlemen at one point he he wears a ring made out of the girl's hair so he just takes a strand of her hair <laughs> curls it into a ring and wears that you know and just around town just, okay you know. <laughs> okay so nowadays it would just be considered creepy uh back then god knows what they thought yeah pretty I... much but there, there's some funny extra yeah. characters pj there's um there's sir john and mrs jennings and a bunch of other characters but i have a nice little quote here huh. um so john's very grumpy and <laughs> he says you and you and i sir john said mrs jennings should not stand upon such ceremony and Sir, then Mr. Palmer says, then you would be very ill-bred. My love, you contradict everybody. Do you know that you're quite rude? And, he, and Mr. Palmer replies, I did not know I contradicted anyone in calling your mother ill-bred. <laughs> so, <laughs> I called her ill-bred, but that wasn't actually a contradiction to anyone, you know? Oh, no one was arguing right. that she wasn't. <laughs> so so there's, some hum- there's some humor in the book as well, right? There is some humor, yeah. There, there is some humor. I tell me this, Dean, I'm not the Jane Austen expert, um, but Jane Austen uh, sometimes goes a bit meta. She go, sometimes goes a bit kind of, uh, uh, seems to do a lot of references to books she had read before. So particularly maybe books around 1790s, from the 1790s or 1800s. Yes, she does. Uh, I'm going to move on in, in a minute to the next book and we'll, we'll see a lot of that. Because there's more um, in that book. But there's a bit of, yeah. of sense and sensibility in it as well, I think, because they already, already started around... Uh, late 18th century that kind of trends of like you know kind of like relationships that just can't exist and like social norms impeding them i know it's a very typical victorian thing but this is pre-victorian and it was already yeah. there um i'm gonna say one more thing about the plot but first i'm gonna finish with another funny quote hmm. uh, lady middleton resigned herself to the idea of it with all the philosophy of a well-bred woman contenting herself with merely giving her husband a gentle reprimand on the subject five or six times every day. <laughs> but, well, I like um, the descriptions, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's written in that, that witty style, you know, the kind of style you would see a lot with, with Dickens and things later on, you know? Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so basically the two girls fall in love and it turns out, I mean, a lot of stuff happens, um, but it, it turns out, you know, that, the, that um, Willoughby starts to kind of not speak to her in society then and he's already married to someone else for hmm. money. And then they think the same thing's happening with the other guy, but he certainly seems to be a bit more honorable. Edward seems to be a bit more honorable. And the question is really, you know, w- will it all work out in the end, basically, you know? Um, and, well, it's a romance novel, so you can probably guess whether it does or not, but I'm not going to spoil okay, it. Okay, you know? okay. So it's not, okay. So don't give away but the it's, it's a decent read. It's a decent read. Okay, what I not, much, it much, my, it much preferred. Yeah, it didn't blow my mind. But the next one did, Northanger Abbey. Ah, now, you've read this one, right? I have read this one indeed, yes, when I was about 16 or so. 
Mm. But um, indeed, so tell me, what did you think about it? I mean, it's it's the least popular Jane Austen novel, I believe, right? Uh, that blows my mind because of the three I've read, it is by far the best. Mm. Um, it's also slightly shorter, which means that it doesn't suffer from that thing where either the first half gets boring or the second half gets boring. It flows better. And guys, let's not forget, so Northanger Abbey was written in 1803 being thus the first novel Jane Austen wrote in complete form, but it wasn't published till after her death, along with Persuasion. So really, it's a kind yeah. of a... Yeah. So, it's almost like they didn't think it was worth publishing, and I don't understand why. It's amazing. Okay, well, I, I wasn't, like, mad about it. Though. So I want to hear what you think about it. And it's got some good uh, things, and it's got a lot of um, very modern traits, I find, that are unusual for that time period. Yeah. Anyway, it's also very meta. It is, um, yeah, totally. Yeah. So this I is mean, kind of this is the book you would read, guys, if you're into. Well, it's very much your kind of book thing because you're into the, you know, you're into all that Victorian literature. And yes, this is a bit pre-Victorian, but you're into the you're into 19th uh, literature around Britain. Yeah. And really, guys, this Northanger Abbey is if you're into that particular niche, Northanger Abbey is talking about that literature niche. Uh, well, you talk about it, Dean, because I know this is your theme, but. You can mention it now. So tell me. So, I mean, it starts out. It starts out meta. It starts out by saying, you know, we are introducing the heroine, basically. Uh And it refers to her as such and discusses Catherine Morland, you know, when she's 10 and then when she's 15, she starts curling her hair and all this kind of stuff. And (laughs) we go go through the steps. And it's almost like she's self-aware that she is the heroine. Mm. And they're they're very aware. And she's looking for an adventure story, basically. Mm. Now, she also reads a lot. And she reads a lot of, you know, Anne Radcliffe and earlier uh, gothic horror type uh, Uh, novellas. They're usually short. Your kind of thing. That's it. That's it. Uh, I, I love my gothic short stories and that kind of thing. (laughs) And this is, um, this is the kind of stuff that she's reading. Yeah. And, she goes to Bath and they, they just have like a nice little holiday. Like, let's go to Bath and we'll hang out and we'll go dancing every day and we'll meet some friends and we'll have a jolly old, you know, English time of it. And um, she meets this other girl who's a bit of a coquette. And you know, I love the coquettes, man. I can't get enough of them. There you go. And they just, you know, they start hanging out in the, the upper rooms. They do some dancing and everything. But she also meets a gentleman and he's a little bit eccentric. I'm going to give you a quote here. I have hitherto been very remiss, madam, in the proper attentions of a partner here. I have not yet asked you how long you've been in Bath, whether you were ever here before, whether you have been at the upper rooms, the theatre, and the concert, and how you like the place altogether. I've been very negligent, but you are now at leisure to, are you now at leisure to satisfy me in these particulars? If you are, I will begin directly. And then he begins and asks the questions in order. Have you been in Bath before? Have, you know, and he just asks the questions <laughs> that he just said he was going to ask. You know, it's very peculiar. Well, it's um, kind of, it's but she falls power, in love with him anyway. It's a parody of like, you know, English kind of norms at that time, right? Making fun yeah, of it is. It, it's parody. Yeah, so you can definitely see the, Jane This Austen's book is humor. incredibly <laughs> self-aware. <laughs> incredibly self-aware. And... Hmm. Just the way, so Kat, the, the main protagonist is Catherine, and she meets a coquette called Isabella. Mm. And I mean, there's a nice, there's a nice scene where they're they're sitting around, and they they see these two um, these two gentlemen, mm. and 
the two gentlemen leave and Isabella is doing a lot of like, how dare those gentlemen look over at us, you know, but at the same time, she's uh, kind of uh, getting in the eye and trying to make them look over. And when they, she says, when they leave, she says, well, we, we better leave now. Why? Those two gentlemen have just left, you know, but actually she's, she's glad they've left, but secretly she's wanting to go after them because she's a big flirt, you know, mm-hmm. and, and Catherine's very, very innocent, very naive. And she says, well, why should we leave now? We might catch up with those two gentlemen. And he's like, oh, no, don't worry about that. You know, we, we won't catch up with them. And then, of course, they they do. And there's a lot of that going on where Elizabeth is just trying to flirt and trying to be noticed by the by the gentlemen. Um, and, of course, unfortunately, she falls in love with Catherine's brother. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. And that's a problem because, of course, we get the impression that she's a bit of a cockhead and she's not the most kind of faithful and that's going right. to run into some problems <laughs> down the line yeah and there's another girl they meet called miss thorpe who seems to be you know a, a, a more trusty friend mm-hmm. uh, and then of course catherine falls in love with her brother well there you go there you go i and like the know, way that it's always it's always just a great kind of coincidence you know it's always like oh she's my best friend and then well, well i just fall in love with her brother and it is. Yeah, that's it's, yeah. it's very easy, very easily done. Exactly. Um, but yeah. before I tell you what happens there, there's something I would be remiss if I didn't mention. Uh-huh. This book, this novel, is very much in favor of the art of the novel. And there's long passages, you know, in praise of novels. We, we, we mentioned that they're reading the Gothic literature, but it's the... They're an advocate for novels. I mean, there's a part where Catherine's reading a novel and it says, yes, novels, for I will not adopt that ungenerous and impolitic impolitic custom so common with novel writers of degrading by their contemptuous censure the very performances to the number of which they are themselves adding. So there was a problem in this kind of time period where reading novels was almost trashy. You know, Mm. people should be reading um, nonfiction works, reference books, sermons, you know, geographies, whatever, histories. You shouldn't be uh, just reading a novel. There was no intellectual value in that. Yeah, uh, they like saw novels almost like you're watching. Show. Yeah, it was almost like you're playing video games instead of <laughs> instead of studying. You know. Yeah, yeah. So, and I don't forget, this is a very kind of Protestant notion of uh, like taking the Calvinist. Like, as soon as you enjoy yourself, you're committing a big sin and you're being immoral. And the thing is, novels are are mainly there for entertainment, and spent more back then than it is now. Actually, now it's becoming a mix. That people don't realize that that novels back then, guys, was primarily a form of entertainment, as well as high art. But that was the first intention. And then, if you got like a Calvinist or a Protestant kind of nation, as you would have in the UK, then they would say, say like, "Ah, oh, look, you're, well, you're you're having too much fun there. You would you not like to read a nice sermon and get yourself ready for life?" That's always about self-educating yourself and becoming a kind of a. Everyone had to become kind of like their best lawyer it's that kind of time period yeah it's doctor is. is always very studious time it was a very studious time period and very interesting i believe also it was seen as a very womanish thing whatever that means i know no idea what they meant really but it's kind of often seen like oh well that must be a woman who had too much time on her hands to read these yes novels. it would have been you know it would have been a richer woman who obviously wasn't having to do the, her own kind of housework or things exactly you know? yeah. and she has the leisure to read a novel and obviously they thought maybe she's not as bright as the men. She's not studying as much. So she can just sit around and read novels. And that's, you know, it's, it's ironic because nowadays we think that person must be very bright if he's reading a book. 
yeah, yeah. that's completely <laughs> different than what they thought then. Yeah, you know, yeah. If you were reading a novel, that was that was almost unintellectual. Like, you totally know, right. Crazy. You should be, you know, get get out the prayer book again. You know, learn some, read something that's going to benefit you. You know, that was kind of their, yeah, their that vibe. Was, that was the idea, right? So, yeah. what happens is they go to, well, I guess you guessed it. They go to Northanger Abbey. Um, she falls in, you know, she falls in love with her friend's brother, and they all invite her over to spend some time with the family, the dad, the general at Northanger Abbey. Hmm. And of course, the brother, he just teases her. He's like, you know, it's an old abbey. It's going to be spooky. And he teases her with all this type of stuff that she's been reading in her gothic stories. And then we, we get to a part of the book where it's essentially a parody of gothic literature. Huh. And she's sneaking around the house and she's afraid what's in that old chest there. Maybe there's going to be a, some kind of clue to a, you know, a tragedy that happened in the house. And she's afraid of a lot of things. And then, of course, it's all it's all bunkum. It's all nonsense. They're just living yeah. in a very normal house, you know. Uh, and that's the other thing I think about this, guys. It's kind of like... Um... Again, it's very meta-esque because if you see films and, and books, I'm just thinking of Kick-Ass, for example. That's a film about people wanting to become heroes. And the same thing since North Anger Abbey started, and, sorry, didn't start that. It started that trend um, for a, a general audience because you had that before and to some extent uh, with novels such as Don Quixote. So these are people who love their novels and it will later be done also in Madame uh, and in Flaubert, Madame Bovary. You oh, have yeah. novelists who love novels and thus have people in their own novels saying they want to live like the novels they read. So it's all about novelists talking about novelists and novel lovers in the book. And, and basically she's doing the same thing Don Quixote is doing. So Don Quixote read a lot of adventure books and he, he wanted to become a knight. In six in sixteenth uh, century Spain, more or less, and but he wanted to become a knight as of like as it was maybe five hundred years ago. And in the same sense, the character of North Angabri, North Angabri, wants to become part of a Gothic story because she loves it so much. So Catherine wants to, and uh, not sorry, not Catherine. The uh, uh, sorry, not Catherine. Yes, Catherine. Sorry, Catherine. It was wants, Catherine. Yeah, yeah. Catherine Morton wants to become. She wants to live inside a gothic novel, become that heroine, as you mentioned. And that was very unusual yeah. at the time. Um, it was done with Don Quixote, as I said, but it was very unusual still for a time for mainstream literature to have people in it who actually read novels and wanted to be in a book. And I kind of also showed you that this is not an adventure book. It's kind of like, it's just this is kind of real life, as in Don Quixote, but it's these people trying to live a fictitious life. Mm. And of course, it it falls into a romance book, the same as everything from this time period eventually did. But yeah. just that first half where it's the set of, you know, it's the pseudo gothic book. And it's so self-aware with her being the heroine and her wanting her adventure. You know, I mean, I struggle with this to, to this day, wanting to live inside these Victorian novels and these romance novels, you know, there you go. that, that got... kind of grip on fiction. I can totally see why you like this book, yeah. Um, now, not, my criticism is that when I read it, I, I found it all a bit um, tedious, uh, to be honest, because it was it is very meta, guys. So it's maybe something you would love if you actually know gothic literature very well. And in your case, Dean, you're, you're the expert. So I'm just thinking for the mainstream reader, I can kind of understand that maybe um, Pride and Prejudice, for example, would be a bit more readable because it's a bit more straightforward rather mm. than meta. So it has its up- Yeah, it's more straightforward, yeah. It has its ups and downs, but it is very, um, it has some great descriptions parodying Gothic literature. But 
I believe Jane Austen also had some criticism regarding um, gothic fiction. I mean, she talks about, in the book, she talks about, uh, there's actually a list of books called the North Anger Horrid novels. All right. So basically what it is, is that uh, Isabella Thorpe gives Catherine a list of seven books because she read The Mysteries of Adolfo. The Mysteries of Adolfo, by the way, guys, is like the main sort of a gothic novel at the time and Radcliffe's considered a classic. But these yeah. uh, horror novels are basically seven novels that for a long time people thought uh, Jane Austen just invented and they're actually now rediscovered as, and they're actually being reprinted. I mean, the thing about this is that it was seen, Jane Austen was kind of criticizing these seven novels a bit for being too stereotypical gothic. But now, because Jane Austen is so popular, she actually revived yeah. her popularity, revived these seven novels, which were forgotten for a while, and people are reading. I, I get it, because I now want to go read Udolfo, because it's one I haven't, I haven't right. read, you know, and, and so she's done that. And that's, but that's a popular one, but there are these seven other ones that are not popular, and people want to read them as well, like, no one knew what the hell the castle of Wolfenbach was by Lisa Parsons, for example, but now it's being reprinted. And that's great. So I really love that. I really love that, that books. It's, mm. Jane Austen really wants to support literature. She's also criticizing these books, to be honest, but she really wants to support and yeah, home ass. She, she really is an, you know, yeah, criticize specific books if you want or subgenres, but she is an advocate for the novel as, a, as an art form and yeah, totally as not being something base, as, as being, you know, a worthwhile pursuit and nothing to be embarrassed about. And that. Okay. I think that's one of the things that really attracted me to this yeah. book, and, and I enjoyed it more than her others. Yeah, yeah, totally. Good. As a bookish kind of, as a book lover, it's, it's more your kind of book. Totally good. Yeah. So have a read, Northanger Abbey. Now, you might have something to say about the next one, PJ. I moved uh-huh. on. We moved a little bit forward in time to 1835, but actually the novel's set in 1819, so we're back where we started. Um, it's Old Gorio uh, by Honoré de Balzac. Oh, yeah, I love the book. Yeah, oh, my God, it's a great book. Now, that's a book I love. I mean, Northanger Abbey is good. Got, got a bit of my nerves, but Old Gorio, guys, it's just Le Père Gorio. Oh, it, it, it's sublime. Set in Paris in 1819, written uh, 1834 to 35. It's part of um, Honoré de Balzac's novel sequence, La Comédie Humaine, so the human comedy. And Honoré Balzac really started off this trend, or at least really um, strengthened this idea of let's do a series of novels that will depict a whole society during a specific time period. And that is a trait belonging to realism. So basically, Honoré Balzac started off as one of the first realist uh, novels because realism is about... Yeah, realism. I mean, what does that mean? Because you think, oh, that's just realistic portrayals. But realism is a realism basically is a reaction to romanticism. So there's romanticism, yes. Sir Walter Scott, that if we move into France now, it's Victor Hugo uh, with Les Miserables, for example. Um, romanticism is all about it's going back to the humanist idea of the man. Man can do everything. I'm afraid not woman, still very sexist kind of time. Man can do everything anything and also this idea of like it's again it's set in exotic backgrounds uh, you know sir walter scott's victor hugo those are they take very exotic backgrounds um that's why shakespeare became popular again during romanticism but balzac said 
Balzac, by the way, who was a guy who just sat in his room all day writing. He was such an obsessive writer. He just wrote from 7 p.m. till the early hours of morning, nonstop drinking coffee. Very unhealthy life, but he did write yeah. a huge amount of books. I mean, oh, few, so many. Few authors have actually managed to. He actually died eventually just because of ill health at age 51, just because of too much coffee and too much running. He can overdo it. But he did leave a legacy. And this was, I'm going, the idea was, I'm going to portray the time period in which I grew up in. And most realist authors, realism appearing around this time, 1830s, strengthening around 1840s was Dickens, 1850s. But most realist authors stay in their own territory, what they know best, and talk about the time period usually that might have happened 10 years before, not usually the time period in which they live in. But yeah, that's, they, that's very common around this time. Yeah, but, but they would, you see, they're more invest, they're more like reporters, they're, they're more reporter authors than your romantic author. The romantic author just like takes the never having visited uh, Saudi Arabia, a romantic author would just say, Oh, this is what I imagines Arabia, but I'm not going to investigate yes. based on nothing <laughs> exactly. But the realist author would actually do the opposite. The realist author would have first of all almost definitely have lived in this time period in this space, and if he's writing. If he's writing in a latter time, sorry, this is set in 1819, but he wrote this in 1834, 35. So Balzac probably um, left a lot of notes from that time. These people would write a lot of notes. They would investigate what happened 10 years before, talk to people. They wouldn't get back too far in the history, just enough that what they themselves remember. Um, and it, it was interesting for two, it's interesting for two reasons, because that's what probably made these books popular. Because at the beginning, a realist novel depicting the exact year it was published was not interesting for most people. It was more interesting. People love to talk about the past. And if it's set yeah, 20 years before, yeah, that's what made it popular. And don't forget, guys, in the end, these novelists, they did have to make a living. So they kind of had to compensate. I mean, if Bazak had the money, if Bazak didn't have any monetary problems, I'm wondering if he just would have written about last year, not uh, 15 years ago anyway that's a bit of background now, guys. Uh, La Comedie Humaine wants to portray French society uh, just post-Napoleonic French uh, society so 18 teens moving on to 1830s around that time period so Bourbon restoration uh, time and, and it's realism guys so it's trying to really depict that time period capture the essence but also goes down to minute detail particular and characters and geography as well and this is the yeah. reason why some people find it tedious because they're ob- ob- often very long uh, novels and this is um well i'll let you talk about that i'll let you talk about the plot and a certain mr charles dickens but anyway dean you want to talk about those two because that's your thing yeah i mean i think i have to preface uh-huh. i think that if it's not clear enough it should be clear from what you said but if it's not clear enough if you are someone who likes romantic books, do, I wouldn't read this. This uh-huh. made me sad. Yeah, totally. You know, this is, it's too real, actually. It's, it's gritty. Now, you may remember on one of our earlier episodes, I reviewed another Balzac book, um, Cousin Bet. Mm-hmm. Now, I would definitely say read Olgorio before reading Cousin Bet. Because right. Olgorio actually does a bit of, of world building um, in the sense that... It's not as gritty, it's not as extreme, but it gives you insight into that world. Because, you know, they're all, as you say, they're all a kind of big series, the human comedy. They're, they're all interlinking. 
Mm. Cousin Bed is what is the more extreme end. It's it's very 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 realist, very gritty, and incredibly depressing. And just the morality is so lacking. This book is not as bad as that. Yeah, and uh, it's not necessary, guys, to start off with the human comedy from the first book, The Revolt, because it doesn't seem to have been such a conscious thing at the time that Balzac would go back to this character's kind of seems to have realized after writing a few novels that he's actually interlinking yeah. them. Uh, but this is the first book from the comedy, human comedy where it starts um, other characters appear. All right. So other characters start appearing from other notes in this book for the first time. So in that sense, it's the first true human comedy novel, but not the first mm-hmm. novel from the, from this whole uh, universe that would eventually be officially be called the human comedy. Yeah. Now, I have to say, I'm tell- I mean, I almost disliked Cousin Bet because it was too much for me. Mm. You know, this book I, I really, really enjoyed. Oh, awesome. uh, yeah, at the it. end, and again, I'm not going to tell you why or what happens at the end, but I just need to mention that I broke down and wept at the end of this book. Mm. And it's that powerful. And, you know, I lo- you know, Dickens doesn't make me do that. No one else makes me do that. You know, mm. even the authors that I love, but this book made me cry. It was, it was too much at the end. You wow. know, it, it it almost builds into the the same kind of world then as the others. So we have this chap Rastignac, and um, I mean, I didn't realize till after I read that he actually appears in a lot of of the human comedy books. You know, he's <laughs> one of the more common characters that will will pop up. Who's um, Yeah, but he's living in a boarding house, and he's basically trying to fight off corruption trying to fight off moral corruption in the world around him whilst also advancing himself in society. Hmm. That's what he's trying to do. But unlike the people in Cousin Bet, he doesn't give in and just fly off the rails in the most immoral possible way. You know, he tries really hard to actually resist temptations. Hmm. And he he is, at least in this novel, I can't say what happens to him in the future, oh, but yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I find him likable, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, I have to get... I'm going to give you a quick, a quick quote that will give us an idea of the world. Uh-huh. So, yesterday dancing at a duchess's ball, this morning visiting a moneylender. From the highest arc of fortune's wheel to the bottom of the social ladder, behold the progress of Parisian women. If their husbands can't support their unbridled extravagance, they sell themselves. If they can't do that, then they're ready to tear the living vitals from their mothers to get the cash to make them shine. There's nothing they won't do. It's this depressing society of, you know, needing to keep up appearances and be the rich, aristocratic Parisian girl, like, at all costs, even if you've got to screw over everyone else on your way to kind of get there. And it's a lot of people living off other people's money and paying their mistresses and, you know, a lot of cheating, a lot of that kind of stuff goes on. It's just part of the course. In fact, uh, there is a French word that actually, that that means a social climber, a a society. so there's a word for social climber in French that comes from uh, a character in Under Balzac. So this whole idea of like, you have to really try hard and to make your way up the ladder of the world is in French an actual word that comes from the name of the character you just mentioned, Rastignac. Ah. And in French, Rastignac is a person willing to do anything to achieve what he wants to. So which indicates, wow. Dean, I'm afraid that Rastignac might not... Remain he might so not uh, no he might not save face for long at yeah. least in this novel he does manage to fight off some of the temptations but you know exactly. it, it's unfair because in this society no one else is fighting off temptations he's the only person who does 
And then he went and put him in too many novels. Come on, give the guy a chance. Like he can well, only that, fight it off so many times. I think know? it's interesting because it kind of shows you like even in, even the most innocent naive character will eventually become corrupt. And I think that's an important point why he should be naive at the beginning. He's still young, but at the end of the novel, he does get disappointed with the notion of of well, I can't say too much, but it's particularly about marriage and relationships that really uh, and familiar family relationships that really would make him a pessimist at the end. So I can, I can imagine uh, continuing reading all the novels and him becoming more and more corrupt. Yeah, a bit, a yeah, bit of a better I think call. I, I, want to, I want to read more of these. I a want bit, to see his, his downward progression, actually. Guys, he's a bit of a better call Saul character, right? So, you know, hard in the right place, but, you know, how much, how much can you push a guy living in such a harsh society? You know, how much can you push him? An honest law student, but, you know, he might be breaking bad eventually. So just keep mm. reading that comedy human. And what you mentioned, Dean, is uh, interesting because it, it's it's funny, the description. And yes, it's tragic maybe, but I'm not sure if you agree, but I think it's a very funny novel, but not the last half because I remember reading it also, guys, and really, I didn't cry, but I was rarely so hooked in a book. Oh, it is. And, a, it, you're hooked, yeah. Yeah, and, and rarely, and, and even more rare, hooked to such an old book because, I mean, some... Books that hook you tend to be slightly more modern. It seems to be a more modern trait. Like when they want to hook you, they didn't try that too much, I find, in the old books. But this one is just, you kind of start reading and it becomes a bit of a, a monologue at, for a long time. It's just 60 pages of it, but but you can't get enough. It sounds really dull, but actually you can't get enough of the 60 pages of weeping. The character kind of metaphorically weeping and you're kind of weeping along. And it becomes very dark. But at the beginning, and it's very funny actually. It's it's, and that's why I want to say about realism. Realism incorporates a lot of humor because Charles Dickens read Balzac, and he started writing in the, uh, he started writing around that time period, eighteen thirty-five. But he would have written um, Balzac's earlier books, and yeah. Benito Perez Gardos, who is the Spanish equivalent of Balzac and Dickens, uh, the main realist author in Spain, who I love also incorporates a lot of humor into his realism and also starts off his own equivalent of La Comedie Humaine. And in some sense, Dickens does as well. Dickens has a kind of a Dickensian universe going on. They all are influenced by this one person called Honoré de Balzac. That's why it's so important. That's it. So what we effectively have here is, we need to say who old Gorio is. Papa Gorio, Peregorio, whatever you want to call him. So he's... Is this this old guy that is they're all in a boarding house together and they all kind of think he's just an old fool, basically. He's an old fool, but they don't trust him because they think he has more money than he's letting on and he's a miser. Uh, and then these two girls come to visit him and they think, you know, oh, he's he's actually, you know, he's got some mistresses. You know, he's a rich old fool. And it turns out early on, no, they're not mistresses. They're his daughters. Huh. And this poor guy, you know, basically worked his ass off his whole life gave all his money to his two daughters, got them well married. And now he's living in a cheap boarding house and he doesn't care because he's thinking, you know, as long as my daughters are happy, I live vicariously mm. through them. And then yep. the daughters treat him like crap. and <laughs> They won't even visit him. They're ashamed to be seen with him because he's poor. But he, he actually was rich. And, you know, um, it, it's yeah, such and, a shame. And it's to be honest, like a lot of stories afterwards and in, in some sense a bit before was King Lear, for example, and stuff like that. It's about how, how much can a father offer to his kids? I mean, it's all very well, you know, fathers doing the best for the kids, but it's the abuse that kids can, can do to parents. That's what the main theme of Old Gorio is. 
Yeah, that's that's the main thing. It's very tragic, to be honest, um, because you're going up the social ladder. That's a very big thing in this in these human comedies. It's about people trying to desperately achieve um, a better high, social class. The Rastignacs of the world. It's an actual French word used nowadays in modern French for social climbers. So these are people um, that live in the society. And as you said, you've got the actual young Rastignac who's not become a social climber quite yet. And uh, just like observing everything, observing this old guy, just uh, offering, he's dying for his, for his daughter. He's actually dying, right? And that's the idea. He's actually just starving himself to death yeah, slowly so they is, can have nice is. dresses and stuff. And the daughters, <laughs> I mean, they, they don't come near him. He's an outcast. Yeah. And all of a sudden when they need some money to pay, because the daughters are, you know, although they're married, they're also cheating as well. And they have affairs. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the guy they're having an affair with needs to pay some, you know, gambling debts or something. So it's off to dad to get him to sell his last silver spoon or, you know, the clothes off his back just to, to you know, take every penny you can from the poor starving old man. And it's thank you today. And then we're not interested in seeing you again tomorrow because we're back. We're fine now, you know. Hmm. Wow. OK, well, well it's, a, it's a very deep story, guys. And it's as I said, it's all about trying to ascend uh, social strata, uh, higher social strata. Yeah, sorry. So I should I should say, even, even in this novel, Rastignac does want social progression. Yeah. And he has a cousin who's very influential, yeah. um, a female cousin. And he, he does go to her and she introduces him to these two, basically the sister, um, you know, one, one of Gorio's daughters. So he ends up getting involved with, with her. And Gorio's happy enough with that. Um, but, you know, he is trying to do some social climbing but he turns down doing things the wrong way. And we've got this chap, Vautrin, and he is also living in the boarding house and he offers, you know, a bad way. He offers the dark way. He's the devil mm-hmm. on your shoulder. And he's saying, you know, I can get you this and I can get you this, but, you know, we might have to, you know, someone might die in the process and mm-hmm. someone else might get screwed over. And, and Rastignac, you know, he, he says, no, I'm not doing that. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he doesn't want to take the, the, the bad way. And he, in this novel, he, he does redeem himself. He considers it, but he makes the right decisions at the end. And he weeps and he is disgusted by how the two daughters treat Gorio, even the one that he loves. You know, he's disgusted by how they, they treat him. And he's disgusted by the people around him and just the lack of love, the lack of empathy that everyone is just out for themselves. Hmm. He does want to get ahead, but he, he tries to do it in a fair way. Hmm. So, guys, definitely a, a novel to, to get into if you want to read, if you want to find out how someone can, like, how far can someone uh, describe Paris, describe a certain city so detailed over a long period of novels. I mean, you've got 10,000 10, of pages of Paris from that time period and characters that keep reappearing. It's essentially, you see, the good thing about a long TV series and look, listen to this. A good thing about a TV series is that at least you can re-enter a character's life again and again. And the novels have, uh, did this. But the problem is, I think that with modern novels, they, they don't do that enough. A modern yeah. novel, just they're not enough serious and they're too superficial. And what's, what's why people are so uh, binge-watching TV series is but because I think people have a hunger, especially nowadays, to get to know someone better. And what a better way to do this with the human comedy which is like the ultimate huge tv series with spin-off it's just like the unending coronation street but so much more better guys this is the proper 
Coronation Street. Yeah, it's it's Coronation Street, but not garbage, right? Exactly, not garbage. And we have to mention <laughs> this, Dean, that Coronation Street wouldn't exist without Balzac and without Dickens, because that is a kitchen sink realism. That's what that's that's another that's a fancy yeah. name for a bit. Basically, yeah. it's all the same. That realism is about really getting into the grid of things. And yes, it can be messy and particularly old uh, old uh, Gorio really describes the dirtiness of a city which wasn't done before. It and is n- dirty. This is this is not Audrey Hepburn's Paris. This is a no, horrible Paris. This is a horrible Paris, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and Emile Zola with naturalism um, in the late 19th century goes a step further and not only describes Paris realistically, but hyper-realistically. So it's like, if it isn't dirty enough, this, then it's like Zola will like show you the real scum of 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 like every mm. single dirty uh, corner. I'm afraid to even encounter this because well, this yes, is already because, too much for me. Well, because naturalism really focuses on the real outcasts of society, whereas realism focus tries to focus on uh, at least all of them, or if not the lower class in Balzac. Uh, but like naturalism actually focuses on on like prostitutes and criminals mainly, and, and it's just it really gets gritty down there. Yeah, very dark. Oh, well, very pessimistic. Guys- before I move on to the last book that I read, um, which is The Awful Truth About the Sushing Prize, I'm just going to take two minutes to do some housekeeping. So I just want to say hello to everyone listening. We do, of course, have you know all our podcast listeners. We have people listening uh, through the TNC network and, of course, on Radio Oxon in, uh, in Oxfordshire. So I just want to say hello to everyone, and we do appreciate your support. If you want Thanks, more of the show, you do, of course have the have the patreon but do you know that we're getting we're getting more and more popular every episode so that's good to see you know i'm delighted to hear that look guys delighted that you're listening delighted to be of service um if there's any questions you have feel free to just uh, ask us in our social media platforms like uh, instagram or we're also available on youtube and other Twitter places as well um all of those places there's links to everything on, on booksboys.com exactly. so fair. feel free to ask any questions um, you have actually about literature or anything and just email us books, booksboys.hotmail.com you can just email us as well i would really really want to hear what you're reading and don't forget i haven't mentioned it in a while but don't forget we still have the mystery book giveaways that's still ongoing so oh, send us oh. an email tell us what you're reading you could win yourself a mystery book from the pointiest bookshelves wouldn't mind winning it myself yeah wow i have nice. something to plug as well pj i was uh, interviewed I was interviewed on another podcast called Universal. That's Y-U-N-A-V-E-R-S-O-L. Universal. Nice. Uh, I was interviewed on the Universal podcast. It went just over an hour. And I just, you know, I just talked about the show and some other projects and things. But uh, if anyone's interested in that, you can, of course, you can, of course, check that out as well. Uh, it was quite a, it was a very fun interview, actually. Wow. Cool. Awesome. The that interview was actually good. done two months ago, but it only got released there last uh, weekend. So that's why I haven't... I haven't that mentioned a secret. it before. That was a secret. It was a, it was a secret. It was indeed a secret. Well, thank you um, for sharing. So, guys, you can check that out. And we should introduce this month's sponsor. It is, of course, LonelyHouseOnTheMoors.org. Oh. So, if you want to get your house, a, yourself a lonely house on the moors where you can live in almost total isolation and then, um, you know, a very closed-minded kind of society... And of course, go around and experience, you know, the mysteries that you have on the moors with howling animals and, uh, you know, all sorts. And, and Get you, yourself to the best estate agent in time, LonelyHouseOnTheMoors.org. And if you if you bring your dad along, he can rest your chin on his knee and hope that he can just give you a smile and stuff. He That's can it. live that That's whole it. kind of lifestyle. <laughs> Spend your whole evening just yearning for recognition while you Parental sadly, love. you know... <laughs> 
parental love. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we also do have um, another uh, sponsor, which I'm going to mention here. So oh. we have an investment center focusing on helping you become more financially independent. We will help you grow your wealth by creating a comprehensive case plan that best suits your goals. Once we do this, we will start diversifying your assets through stocks, bonds, ETFs, and much more. We offer courses on trading stocks, bonds, options, and spreads, as well as setting up an IRA based on your risk tolerance. These courses are part of the subscription for no extra charge. We offer a flat rate of £650 for 12 months of service. And I will put a link to that on the show notes. So anyone who is interested in that type of investment, uh, we do have an actual sponsor and we can, we can hook you up with a good deal with them. Okay, it's a good time to, to think about that, guys. Think about your future, you know? At least inform yourself and check it out. There you go. That's it. That's it. So, PJ, I read one more, I read one more book. It's called The Awful Truth About the Sushing Price. And mm. this was groundbreaking stuff. Right, the okay. book is, is written by Marco Ockram. By the way, Ockram is Marco backwards. Marco Ockram. Um, it's really written, of course, by Dennis Shaughnessy. Um, Marco Ockram is the main character. And it's this amazing idea where the character writes the book as it happens around him. Ah, He's not like omnipotent. It. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Be but nice. he writes the things that happen. That He writes a murder. So now they've got to deal with a murder mystery type investigation. But he doesn't know who did it. He doesn't know the answers. Right. Uh, you know, maybe he gets beaten up or, or they get kidnapped or something. You know, he's part of the story. He's a character within it. He's not all powerful, but he makes the things happen. And okay. um, it's I've never seen a book written like this before. Okay. But basically, there's a there's a, a murder happens and it, it is that type of investigation then that we go into. But it's it's just this crazy story where he 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 just he he writes the things that are happening around him and everyone else is aware that he's writing them as well yeah. uh, it's not a secret or, and he doesn't physically take out a piece of paper and write it he just somehow makes it happen you know right okay well cool sounds awesome it's sounds- really really good oh pj I, I think i i hear the telephone ringing oh wow. you just bear with me a few minutes i'm yeah, gonna okay. see who's on the line and then i'll be right back okay well i'd love to hear when you're back through one hey you're through the books boys you got dean on the line Who's calling in? Dean, it's Dennis Shaughnessy here. And I, I, I must start with an apology because I've asked the operator if they could reverse the charges because I'm in a call box and I haven't got any money. So I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask if you're prepared to pay the charges. For oh, this. goodness. I suppose, we, I suppose we should have to do it on this occasion because I would actually really love to speak to you having, having just read your book. Um, that's, it's taking us a little bit over budget for the week, you know, but I, I think we'll manage. I think we'll yeah. manage. Well, I, I could do some uh, mundane tasks on your behalf to uh, pay for it, if you like, to pay my way. I could, like, edit some of your podcasts or, you know, come in and wash some of your dishes or do some well, of the your dishes is a good dirty one laundry. Because, you know, during this show, we drink a copious amount of tea. So oh, if I wow. just had someone okay. in there just to wash the tea and bring the next one. Yeah, out, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, um, for your overseas listeners, Dean, it might be um, important for me to explain that my surname, Shaughnessy, is about as Irish as you can get. And it that, is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that when I was um, a kid, of course... The kettle was always on in our house. You know, there was never, <laughs> ever any absence of tea. 
that's it. There's days when I drink close to close to 20 cups of tea. You know, oh, it's, wow. it is yeah, always, yeah. always going every, you know, every hour at least. And sometimes, yeah. sometimes you make that perfect cup that just makes you want a second one right away. So it's yeah, you know, yeah, two that yeah. hour then. Yeah. And, and Dean, yeah. have you noticed that um, tea goes better with certain foods than others? Hmm. I, I tend to drink tea with every meal. Okay. So, I don't know. What What are you thinking? Like, which foods would you say it goes particularly well, well with? Well, particularly spicy foods. So, you know, if you have like, um, uh, well, I'm going to offend you now by saying the term full English breakfast, but <laughs> we could say full Irish breakfast, you know, so if you have, you have the works for breakfast, tea goes perfectly with that. Well, whereas, yes, it does. Yeah. Whereas if you have porridge, you know, tea doesn't quite go as well no. porridge, no. It does traditionally go well with a full breakfast, but I, I like a cup of tea with my porridge. I would have porridge for breakfast most most mornings, like, you know. Yeah, I yeah. yeah, I just can't get away from the tea, you know, tea with my meal and then another tea immediately after my meal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's usually best, Dean, if you have a cup of tea in between the tea that oh, you yes. have with your meal and the tea that you have without you of mean. course yeah, yeah. before yeah. during after and between yeah. the during yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah as many as possible well how are you doing today yeah dean i'm good i'm very excited about being on the podcast with you um i've um, researched you a bit i've been stalking you somewhat oh, and I've, I've concluded that you have uh, a cast of mind that in some respects at least might be similar to my own and that could be you know, because of our shared Irish ancestry, who knows? Uh, or it could be because you're um, a student of philosophy and I am uh, I consider myself to be a bit of an amateur okay. philosopher. Good. You have done your research already. It's, it's coming oh, yes, out there, yes. yeah. Well, you know, Dean, <laughs> when you have a person like me on your podcast, you know, standards get raised. Well, that's I, it. I We're on around, the premium you know, episode perfection. now. Yeah, perfection is my watchword. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. So, yeah, I, I take it that you've been listening to the show, and it's it's really good to have you call in. Well, it's my pleasure. I so, uh, have listened to all the episodes. Oh, wow, that's very dedicated. Even I haven't listened to all of them. You know? uh, Dean, <laughs> what, a, what a shocking admission. Fancy. No, I, 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 I jest, I jest. I've listened to them all I, twice over. You know. <laughs> Do, do, didn't you edit them? Yes. Yeah, so I listen to them all. You know, obviously I, I record yep. and I listen as I'm editing. And then once the podcast uploads, I'm always the first person to download it and listen back. Oh, again. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Because I got to yeah. make sure that that finished product is is actually, oh, I forgot to edit out something or, you know, it's got to be right. Yeah. So. It's got to be perfect. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. luckily that's been fine. With, with the old show I did years ago, there was definitely times where I had to pull the episode back down again because there was five minutes in the middle of me, you know, making a cup of tea and, and forgetting that I was on air or something. Yeah, but yeah, I, I've yeah, never done yeah. that yet on this show. I, once it goes out, it's, it stays out. But I still always double check. <laughs> cool. Well, I think we need to tell people a little bit about you, because although you've been stalking us, uh, the listeners have not been stalking you, I guess. So do you want to tell us what you do? Well, Dean, I uh, since you, you and PJ are both philosophers, I, I thought I might... Um present a tough philosophical conundrum to you because I was going to describe myself as an internationally acclaimed author of cult novels and it struck me that 
you and PJ as philosophers might be interesting people to whom I might pose the question, how many adherents does a cult have to have before it can claim to be a cult? So if, if I was the only follower of my cult novels, for example, could I claim <laughs> I was a cult? Or do I, you know, how many, novel, how many followers do my novels have to have before I can legitimately mm. claim they're cult novels? I think you can have a cult of one, you know? Okay. All, you, all, okay. all you need is a, a devout following. If that devout following is just yourself, yeah, less than ideal, but I, I think it's it's still a cult following, you know. Okay, okay. So technically, I'm the author of cult novels. Then, in that case, technically, technically, you are. Yeah. yeah Although I yeah. should say, I should say, um, I really, really enjoyed um, the Sushing Prize. I mean, that, oh, if that's if that's a cult novel, I'm I'm happy to say that I'm going <laughs> to join that cult. You know. <laughs> so, so we're a cult of at least two. At least two of us. Yeah. But, uh, according, you know, if we're doing like an evidence based review of the books we could <laughs> we could say there's at least two and um i'm i'm very very lucky dean and uh very very touched by the fact that i i also have a number of people on twitter who've read books that are written by supposedly by mark Rockram who love them too so so i think that the two of us are not the only people in the cult i'd be fibbing if i said the cult was like a massive one with billions of people, but there's certainly more than just you and me in it. Well, thankfully. I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad yeah. to hear it. I mean, I have to ask you, I guess, I don't want to be a stereotype. It's probably the most obvious question to ask you, but like the the way that you write is incredibly original and creative. And I'm just, you know, what made you choose that style? Oh, wow. Well, uh, it's very nice of you to say that firstly. Dean um, and the I think it came about I've always written I know that's cliche too everybody says they always like to write and I wrote a number of conventional thrillers that I still probably have some around the house uh, and I s- sent I think one of one or two of them to some agents and got knocked back and I looked at all the advice. I decided, right, I'm going to take this seriously and I'm going to do some research. And I looked at all the advice that was available to writers on the internet. And I was kind of appalled by it because it all seemed to be encouraging people to write the same sort of stuff in a very mm-hmm. middle-of-the-road way. And I thought to myself, crikey, how on earth am I going to stand out? Um, so I... So early on, I took the decision that I wanted to write something that was utterly, utterly different from everything else. And the question then is, okay, if that's what I want to do, what exactly shall I write? And I, I started to write um, a book, which was an example of a book that broke every kind of accepted rule of literature, that made all the mistakes you could imagine. And... I had great fun doing it, but after I'd finished it, I realized that actually it was so bad that anybody who looked at it would, might think I was uh, a genuinely bad author. So they might read it and think, this guy's a total idiot. And I thought, well, how, how am I going to get around the problem? How am I going to uh, make people realize that this awful writing I'm doing is deliberate rather than a natural yeah. product of my own incompetence? And I 
very quickly realized that one way to do it would be to make the narrator comment on his own awfulness. Mm -hmm. And very quickly, I found myself in this position where I'd like created this, this uh, author come protagonist called Marco, who was writing a book that in certain respects would be, if you know, if you're an objective robotic reviewer, you would say that is an awful book. Uh, but as the narrator, he kind of foregrounded all of his shortcomings and all of his mistakes and all of his errors to make you realize that they, they were deliberate rather than accidental. And that's how it came about, you know. So, so I, I invented this, this way of um, writing. And, Dean, I have to confess that I'm, I still haven't come to terms with it. You know, I've invented this way of writing books that, as far as I know, I've researched it to death, and as far as I know, nobody else has done it before. And I still can't believe that nobody else has done it before. You know, I still yeah. can't believe that I've thought of something new. Um, because you'd think everything had been done before. You would. I mean, it's an incredibly creative. And, and I, I did think, you know, my first instinct was, this is a really groundbreaking style of writing. And then I thought, I guess something similar to what you thought, someone must have done this before. Yeah. And yeah. I checked with what I'd read and I asked, you know, PJ, and no, it, we, we couldn't think of anything, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so I'm, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm... 60, I forget how old I am, Dean. I'm 60 <laughs> something, okay? I'm in my very, very, very late 20s. I'm sort of like 2041. Um, and so I'm um, uh, practical enough to realize that the chance of this becoming famous in my lifetime is pretty low. But on the other hand, I think to myself, it is, it is um, different. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm just hoping that maybe uh, enough people will spot it's, dif it's different in a nice way and um, uh, it, might, it might get somewhere. But, of course, the, my principal objective, I, I should say, my principal objective above all others is to provide something that cheers my readers up. You know, so as, as, as much as I'd like to think the books are clever literary experiments, my real hope is that people might just enjoy them and find them a good laugh. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that anyone could read it and enjoy it and, and find it a good laugh. Um, I would hope that, you know, most of those people could, always, could also realise that it is really just a very interesting and... and new way to it's a novel way to write a novel you know it's a very yeah. very interesting style and you, you do you kind of fall in love with marco walkram a little bit you know he's i suppose in some ways he's a bit selfish he's a little bit carefree almost to an extent he doesn't care if you know como misses his, his uh, football game he just wants to spice up his own day kind of thing and you, you know, at times he's almost a bit of an ass, but he's, he's yes. kind of a lovable ass, you know? Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. And um, Dean, again, I've got a confession to make there because the original incarnation of Marco was uh, not really a likable character. And I, um, in hindsight, I did something really, really, really important, which is I paid uh, to engage the service of um, a, an experienced editor 
a guy called Jonathan Ayres, and, and I hope you won't mind me mentioning his name um, in public. And he said to me, he, he was very encouraging. You know, he, he, he confirmed the fact the books were written in, a strange, in an unusual way, strange and unusual way. But he said that I was making a big mistake by making Marco, the main character, an unlikable mm-hmm. character. And he said, you know, people will be much more likely to enjoy the book if Marco's a nice character. So I changed... It didn't take much of a change, but I changed Marco around and made him a likable idiot. You know, you, um, I remember in one of your earlier podcasts, you and PJ talked about Bertie Wooster. And I know that you weren't a big fan of Bertie Wooster, but um, to me, Marco has inherited quite a bit of Bertie Wooster's DNA. So he's like this idiot who is um, quite, quite articulate. So he's able... in. He's a bit of contradiction because he's quite con- he's quite articulate and therefore able to describe what's going on, which you think was a sign of intelligence. But on the other hand, he's utterly stupid in terms of being able to figure out what's going on and control it. You know, so he's he is. Um, I hope he's comes across as a lovable idiot. He cer- he certainly does, and yeah, I mean. I read I read some of the the Worcester stuff and I I thought that it had a really good idea. I just something that PJ loved that I didn't was just the particular writing style. It used a lot of abbreviations and acronyms yes. where there didn't need to be any. And that's what annoyed me more than anything else. The the world building was was beautiful, you know. So I was actually gonna say to you, because in this book, and I, there is a mention of PG Woodhouse, and I was planning on actually asking you, you know, to kind of comment on that. Do you think that it's almost like Worcester wrote a novel sometimes, I feel like, you know? And um it's interesting that you kind of had similar kind of thoughts on that. It, it, it is a similar style in certain ways, but then as we said, in, in other ways, it's a, it's a totally new style. Um, but I did get a little bit of that same kind of vibe with the, with the comical aspects, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the, um, I would like, I would love to coin the term ochromism because the, the, the premise of the book is it's being written by this guy called Mark Ockram, who is, inventing the story in real time as you are reading it. And he is also kind of inventing his own existence because although he's the author of the book, he's also his his own protagonist. So he's making it up as he goes along. And because of that, because he's writing it in real time, he doesn't have the time to either edit it or to think it through. So he, he can't think ahead. Um, so he he makes all these mis- literally literary mistakes and gaps yes. as he goes along, and he foregrounds them, which is like um, totally different to like a normal book. So in a normal book, the author makes every effort he possibly can to polish the work to the point where you don't realise there's an author behind it. You believe it's uh, you can kind of buy into it as being a story. Whereas Marco does the exact opposite. He, he's constantly putting in your face the fact that he is trying to write this book and he's not very good at it. And Marco, in the role of the character, is suffering from all the stupid decisions that Marco 
in the role of author is making. And in that sense, I, I think it's um, a kind of metaphor for real life, you know, because, you know, in real life, Dean, we do stuff and we're not re- we can't edit it and we can't really plan it all out perfectly. That's true. You know, so it's, um, it's a, uh, I think of it as a, a Marco as a kind of everyman character, really. That he, he he represents all the doubts and short shortcomings that we all experience, and he's just a bit more upfront about it. I think that's fair, and you're you're right. You know the that main premise of him writing the world around him is brilliant because he doesn't always know what he's going to do. And I mean, I've got a, I've got a quote here. Uh, the most important so the most important thing was whether I fancied Flora enough to spend another sixty thousand or so words in her company. I decided it was too risky. Her character was underdeveloped. So, you know, admitting that right there, that's amazing. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Um, and some of the twists, I mean, you may, have, you may have picked up on kind of going through the show. We typically talk about a novel and we mention some of the stuff that happens near the beginning. We never go too far into it because we don't like to spoil anything. Yeah, I think that, although I don't mind reading a book that's been spoiled for me. I know that a lot of people, you know, with books and with films as well, like they don't, they don't want the ending spoiled. And then we try really hard not to do that. Um, but I suppose we can, we can mention sort of a little bit. So we effectively have Marco goes to see Como, believing that there's a new case and actually they're just going to watch, uh, watch the football. So then, all of a sudden, there is a new case. Marco's written it. There's a new case. Off they go, and a body's been squished by a shipping container. And all the clues that they find lead back to this one apartment. But it goes wild. We've got bits where he sees the Pope. We've got bits where he's in disguise as Tom Cruise. Fires in the warehouse. Like it, it, it goes. Um, I don't want to say it goes off the rails because it knows where it's going. But it, it, uh, it's a very adventurous story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and um, I have another another confession to make, which is that I do try to write like Marco does. There, there, there is one key similarity and one key difference. So Marco, for the benefit of your audience who won't know what we're talking about, Marco is um, this idiot who has been coached by a literary guru to write in, in kind of the way that Jackson Pollock painted. So if, if you think of Jackson Pollock, the author, oh, sorry, Jackson Pollock, the painter, he um, was famous for creating paintings spontaneously, for just chucking paint on the canvas, and his, his work sells for millions of dollars. And Marco has, has kind of been coached to do that, to just chuck the words on the page without thinking. And um, the the consequence of that is that Marco makes all these kind of um, idiotic, stupid decisions about the way in which the book's going. So he's, he's sort of uh, got no control whatsoever over his plot. And the um, as, a, as a result of that, all kinds of weird things happen. And I... In some respects, I follow Marco's logic. So I, when, when I reach a point in the book where I have to decide what happens next, I always, always, always go with what the first thing that enters my head. You know, <laughs> so if, if what enters my head is he meets the Pope, I think, right, he, okay, oh, he's going to meet the Pope and I've got to make that work, you know. So 
So part of my writing process is exactly the same as Marco's. Whenever I reach a branching point in the plot, I go with what the very, very first thing that comes into my head. The, the difference between my approach and Marco's approach is Marco um, will tell you that he just types everything and never edits it. But actually, the amount of editing and rework and, you know, yeah. endless, 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 endless polishing, it, it just never stops. You know, it, it's very uh, – you'd think it might be easy to just write the first thing that comes into your head, but actually – it's really difficult, you know. It's difficult, yeah. I think you pick up on that, you know. There's times where you think, okay, obviously there's some deliberate mistakes and things, and then you realise, well, the style of the writing is not just there to hide mistakes. It's actually creative, and the mistakes are part of this. Like, they're deliberately part yes. of it. And then you realise there's, like, a whole second kind of layer of it, you know, because it's, it's not laziness. It's actually extra work like yes yeah 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 i mean a, a great example of that is in 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 the next book the second book uh, that, that comes out uh marco it, it's a spoof on the name of the rose if you've read the name of the rose book, yeah by umberto echo yeah which is um a novel that is set in a medieval monastery it's like um a sherlock holmes adventure set in a medieval monastery and there's okay. all kinds of postmodernist references to Sherlock Holmes in Umberto Eco's book. And um, in Marco's second book, he reprises Umberto Eco's Name of the Rose by having a um, a retreat in a, in a celebrity retreat that's run like a medieval monastery. So Marco goes to this place, and at one point, something dreadful happens and um, one of the monks comes racing into the foreground, screaming, screaming, it's, it's Stan, Stan, Stan has come amongst us. We, you know, we're all doomed. Stan has come amongst us. And Marco and the abbot in this monastery and everybody else is going, who's Stan? Who on earth is Stan? You know? And uh, then Marco realizes that actually – it's just a typo and that Stan should be Satan. So, <laughs> he, so, he, so he then like rewrites everything and said, Oh, it's Satan. Satan has come amongst us. So that's like a typical Marcoism where mm-hmm. he, he kind of makes a mistake because he's writing stuff as he goes along in real time. And he's so stupid. He goes along with his own mistake until suddenly he realizes it. And then he tries to put it right. Whereas in a real book, of course, you know, uh, if you accidentally type Stan instead of Satan, your editor would pick it up and it would be um, yeah, fi- yeah. fixed before the readers ever saw it. And what's curious is that the people around him, you know, it's not like it's not like he's writing the, the book and he's writing the world they're in, but the others don't know. They all know it. Yes, and they, they I do. mean, in the, in the court scene, they say, well, I, I had his defense is basically... I was trying to avoid the, the deus ex machina happening too early in the story. And they yes. said, oh, well, that, that's a plausible defense. You know? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So, and I, um, I think, I think Dean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is my third confession so far. This, um, may, maybe I'm going back to my Irish roots speaking to you and, think, <laughs> and, you know, I'm gotten to this confessional mode as if I'm talking to a priest or something, but, um, 
I, I confess that that at least is in part lifted from Flan O'Brien. I don't know if you've read any of his books, particularly uh, at Swim Two Birds. Oh, no, we're, I haven't. Okay, well, that, that's worth reading. Um, but the, the idea of an author interacting with his characters who are conscious that they are characters, um, to some extent they're conscious that they're characters at least, uh, is something that in part I blatantly copied from him. And in Marco's books, the, uh, I, the way I've tried to write it is that the characters who are most aware that they are characters are the characters who appear most. So the very minor characters, they behave like normal characters in books, whereas Como, who's Marco's main character, he's the one who is most aware that he is a character. So he's the one who's most collusive with Marco the author rather than just with yeah, Marco yeah. the character. Yeah. And I think Como gets annoyed with him, but he, you know, he loves him really. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's I, I love that about the book. I um, and I should say that I love I love all my characters. Um, and I think if you're going to be an author, loving your characters is a huge advantage. And what I, one of the things I love about Como is that on the one hand, Marco drives him nuts, but on the other hand. He's like really protective of Marco and, and faithful to him, and and that that idea of uh, someone who is driven nuts by you but remains faithful to you, I I find very uh, move, moving. Might be too strong a word, but but I, but I think it's a very endearing human characteristic that yeah, we yeah. can yeah that that some people can drive nuts drivers nuts but we love them still you know i my favorite aspect is actually the the sort of the pride and the pomp that he has and just the amount of people that love him and he can't go anywhere without people <laughs> asking him to sign an yeah, autograph yeah. or yeah. he meets the pope and it's a, it's a pleasure meeting your supreme holiness again <laughs> i acknowledged his words with with humility like it's the pope saying that to him you know yeah yeah no matter what happens everyone's yeah. asking him oh and you you know, he he was obviously a physicist before he was an author, so they're complimenting his physicist work, or they're asking him to sign a copy of the Herbert Quarry Affair. It's always yep. just heaping praise on him. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell, tell me this. Um, one thing I like to ask everyone is, what have you been reading lately? Oh, well, um, I uh, live on a small holding, Dean, and the reason that's re relevant to mention is that when, when you have a small holding, it's like an endless amount of labor that you have to do. So I, I'm all, always working outside. And so as a result of that, I have very little time to read physical books, but I do listen to stuff a lot on my phone. And I, I have been listening to uh, a huge number of uh, books and other kinds of things, podcasts like yours, on, on my phone. One, one book that I've listened to really that um, I found really good. And indeed I found it better as a podcast than as a physical book was the remains of the day by uh, Kashiguru, which is a story about a guy who was a, a very prim butler who has been working for some people between the wars who 
misguidedly as seduced by um, Hitler and the, and the Nazi movement and so on. And he um, feels, uh, I, I think he feels um, in a way a degree of pride about his role and his employer, a mis misguided degree of pride. And eventually he realises, I think, that uh, um, the way he has lived his life has been a very empty way. And the book that I listened to was narrated by a guy, I think, called Simon Preble, and with hindsight, that guy does such a brilliant job of narrating that book hmm. that um, it, it was just amazing. And, and as soon as I listened to it all the way through, I immediately listened to it again, uh, which just goes to wow. show you how uh, moved I was by it. Straight back there for um, a second ago. Yeah. And then um, a few of the things I've been listening to, I um, have been – I, I – Love the idea of making my books into movies, Dean. Mm -hmm. And I have, I, I'd started to develop a screenplay for one of the books because I'd been encouraged by some of the people on the internet who'd read them and, and, and thought it would be a good idea. And investigate the whole kind of movie business. I found out that it was, a, it was as unlike the book writing business as you could possibly imagine. It was very prescribed. There were very, very, very well-established conventions about story structure and so on. And so I've had this like open mouth fascination with um, uh, the, the conventions of screenplay writing. So I've been listening to probably about 100 hours of advice from Hollywood gurus about how you write screenplays. And some of the advice, I should say, is unbelievably prescriptive, you know, to the point where someone like me, I'm a massive iconoclast. I don't agree with any rules whatsoever. And I, <laughs> I find I'd never it, have guessed. <laughs> and I find it really funny to read these, these gurus who say, Every screenplay should have an inciting incident. And the inciting incident should start on, like, um, I'm going to exaggerate this a little bit, on the fifth word of the fifth sentence of page nine, you know. The, the, yeah, this, yeah. This kind of stuff. And uh, I actually think it would be funny in a postmodernist sense to write a screenplay that broke nearly every rule of screenplays, but still mm -hmm. adhered completely to all these things you know so i'm, I'm trying to write a world-breaking screenplay that still has the um inciting incidents on word it has to break 83 percent of the yeah 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 it has to break 83 percent of the established rules right <laughs> yeah but but comply entirely with the remaining 17 percent yeah, yeah yeah very good and the last question, the famous last question that we like to ask everyone, if there was one book that you wish you had written, what would it be? Well, Dean, I always wonder whether why everybody you put that question to doesn't just say Harry Potter. Because, you know, <laughs> yeah, obviously... they make a lot of money, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, I, I, I... Dean, do you, do you, are you one of these people who 
read certain books repeatedly or, or are you one of these people who just reads every book just once? I have read one or two books twice, but usually I try to read them once. And the, the reason for that is because there's more, there's more to read. You know, once I yeah, finish yeah. all the books, maybe I'll start again, but that'll take me another couple hundred years. Yeah, you know? it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting because I've found that people fall into two camps. There are people who never read a book again or always want to move on to something new. And there are people who love reading the same books again and again and again. Yeah. yeah. And I fall into the second camp, you know. So I, I find that when I when I found a book I really like, I love to read it repeatedly. And one book I have uh, really enjoyed, which I would like to bring the, to the attention of you and your army of listeners is: um, Have you heard of the Brigadier Gerard stories? Oh, no, I can't say I have, to okay. be honest with you. Right. Well, I know you like Victorian stories. You've heard clearly of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Of course, yes. You have, yeah. Well, he wrote these books. and oh, right. um, Yeah, and I think they are um, in a league above of the Sherlock Holmes stories. They're a series of short stories about this, written in the first person by this guy called Brigadier Gerard, who is a retired... French cavalry officer whose um, career was in the um, French cavalry in Napoleonic times. So he, he served under Napoleon. And there are a series of short stories about the exploits he got up to when he mm-hmm. was younger. And I think they are like real gems of short stories in that they are beautifully written. They have very, very inventive plots, and most importantly, they they are very witty, so they're much more funny than the Sherlock Holmes stories are. So the Sherlock Holmes stories are a little bit funny because Watson's relationship with Holmes is a bit funny, but the Brigadier Gerard stories are much, much funnier. And all the humour stems from the fact that Brigadier Gerard is this massive egotist so he's totally up his own backside he thinks he's like god's gift to everything especially god's gift to women and to armies but he's a, he's an idiot you know he's a little bit like marco in that sense <laughs> and he gets into all these um scrapes they're very very tall stories but they're just beautifully written and really clever and dean i would um honestly i, I would employ you to um to, to have a look at them. And oh, yeah, maybe, I think I should. Maybe, yeah, report back on, on one of your podcasts. Yeah, definitely. I'm always looking for, for new stuff. I mean, at any one time, I have about at least 20 books in my queue, and I have worked out which, you know, where I'm going to read them and, and what. I'm very methodical with it, um, and I need to get always new stuff. I just bought a whole bunch of stuff, but I think I might be able to make an opening and slip one of those in because they it sounds very, very good. Well, they're, they're short stories, so if, if, you do, if you do nothing else, just read at least one of them. So yeah, I think now, that's easy to do. Now, to just turn things around a little bit, Dean, tell, tell me about what you're up to and how much time do you spend on the art? Um, not as much as I would like. Um, one or two afternoons a week is probably all I can really put into yeah, it, you okay. know, on the weekends okay. or, or whatever. Not nearly as much as I would like. And I, I was before 
you know, I was doing evening classes and things, you know, pre-COVID um, with it with instructors to learn, you know, how to draw better and things like that. And obviously, I haven't been able to do that lately, which is a shame. So it's something well, I, I did really enjoy. But yeah, well, my flippant recommendation would be to increase your prices by about a factor of a thousand. You know, so were you selling <laughs> trying to sell a painting thirty quid? I think. You, if you ask for 30,000, you know, I think that would do. Um... That's the way to do it. Yeah. yeah Guys, yeah. Um, for anyone listening, you know, on, on booksboys.com, there's a link on the bottom to my paintings. If you want to buy one and then just send me a check for an additional $1,000, like work away, you know. <laughs> yeah, why not? Why not? Why not? Yeah. Well, Dennis, it has been absolutely lovely having you on the show. Um, it's, it's been great. And we should tell everyone to check out your website, theawfulauthor.com. Yep. And and to read the book, I mean, you can read the uh, the Sushin Prize, and of course, you mentioned also the name of the rose. Are we ever going to be able to read the Herbert Quarry affair? Well, Dean, it comes out in about th- uh, what date is it? In about two and a half weeks' time. There we go. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, I'll, I'll send you a copy. It's um, it's a real groundbreaking book. It's the book that made Marco famous, and uh, it. it I can't guarantee that people who read it will like it, but I absolutely can guarantee that it'll, it'll be quite unlike anything else I've ever, I've I ever read. So, yeah. I can certainly believe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's been lovely having you on the show. Take care. Have a good evening. Yeah, look after yourself, Dean. All the best. Bye. Nice. Bye. Wow, guys. Dennis Shaughnessy calling in just as we're discussing his book. That's amazing. And don't forget theawfulauthor.com if you want to check out his books. Awesome. Cool. Well, it sounds very good, the book. I like the sound of it. And it sounds almost Woodhousian, um, some of the themes. You know what? We, we mentioned there, yeah, it is, in some yeah. ways, it is actually Woodhousian. And Woodhouse is mentioned in the book even at one point, you know. Right. So it's, it's Woodhousian in, in, in the style of its humor at times, but it's, it's a really, uh-huh. really groundbreaking approach in some ways. PJ, we're going to take a quick break to play an ad for another great podcast, and then we'll be back in one minute to see um, what you want to talk about. What we do here is go back, 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 back. And we're back. And we're back with another episode of Wait, Bros. wait, 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 James, James. They might not know who we are yet. Oh, right. This is a promo. Well, I'm James. And I'm Matt. And together, we're the Bros and Brews podcast. We're coming at you every week with worldly discussions, an art meets life questions podcast. What three albums would you take to a deserted island? How comfortable are you with sex and sexuality? Is it ethical to have children? What actually makes a great actor? We use our personal experiences, the craft of acting, and pop culture as a springboard to discuss everything. From uncomfortable truths, demonized issues, and problems often swept under the rug. But don't worry. We have fun along the way. Come join us for our weekly chicken, and we'll see you next time. Peace! Do you love history? Then this podcast is for you every week, while well, That Aged Wow takes you on a journey through history with new topics ranging from ancient Rome to recent history. Every week, new historians come on the show to talk about new topics. We give you real stories from real historical events. You don't want to miss an episode of Well, That Aged Wow with Erland Hedgegaard. Okay, let's go. So, PJ, yeah. why don't you take the floor? Well, um, I've been reading a few plays, actually, this month. I've been taking it easy. And these plays are all mentioned in... And uh, they're all mentioned in the, on our Patreon website. So we did get into the one and only Hamlet, the tragedy 
the tragedy about a man who cannot decide. It's the ultimate existentialist play by William Shakespeare. What I mean by that is that this play would this play is unusual for a time because a man doubting what to do. So basically, it's about a man whose father was murdered, a prince whose father was murdered, and the ghost comes to him and says that your uncle, my brother, killed me. So therefore, you must seek vengeance. And young Hamlet doesn't. And that's very unusual for the time. It's very existentialist. It's very kind of modernist in a sense. Oh, I'm not sure if I could if I could do this. I don't want to commit murder. I don't want to do this. Uh, you know, he's, he's over-rational. He's too much in the head. He's not at all the romantic. He's not at all a romantic figure. He isn't actually. He's not at all a romantic figure. Just like, oh, well, then I shall seek vengeance for my dad. So it's a great play, guys. It's one of my favorites. And we go into death and the Patreon website. And we got the idea to uh, then, you know, we got the idea. Well, you know, Shakespeare, old Billy, he's a great lad, isn't he? But uh, sure he can't be the only great player. He can't right be the only era. one, right? Yeah. And then we checked out his peers, including old Kit Marlowe, uh, Christopher Marlowe. And um, yeah, we were pleasantly surprised, weren't we, Dean, to discover his plays? Yes, we were. I have we to mention that Dean also read these plays with me. I also read them, yeah. Yeah, so like we, we and we both discovered uh, Christopher Marlowe starting off with Dr. Faustus. Uh, what did you think of Christopher Marlowe? I, you know, my, my opinion's interesting. Dr. Faustus was amazing. Yeah. Um, oh my God. I really, really loved it. It was powerful stuff, totally different from, you know, anything I've read from Shakespeare, yeah. uh, which is all of Shakespeare. So very different from Shakespeare. Totally. But I just, I couldn't quite get over that play actually it, it, it was a big impact on me yeah and um, but then when we read the second one tamberlane i thought that was a bit more yes it was a good play don't get me wrong uh. Uh, we read tamberlane part one but it was a bit more back to the uh the shakespeare style right yeah yeah totally right uh, dr faustus really pops out as something really unusual about a man um uh, signing a pact with the devil that he could have unlimited powers for 24 years before his soul would be given to the devil and it's yeah it's very different but you read Tamberlin twice you actually read Tamberlin twice because you weren't you were so scheduled at first and the second read was a lot more interesting right yeah so the first time I read it I just felt like I wasn't maybe I was wanting something impactful like Faustus again I don't know but I read it and I felt like I didn't take anything away from it yeah Uh, so I, I read it again um I read it a second time and I took a lot more from it the second time. I enjoyed it more. I under I understood it a bit more. And we're gonna we're gonna record that episode of um, Renaissance Renaissance uh, very soon. But for for now, um, Faustus, that episode is up, and you can you can already hear that one. Definitely. Um, but yeah, he's it's different from Shakespeare. But is it fair of me to say that Tamburlaine, although it's a great epic and it, it reinvigorated mm. you know that type of of kind of play, yeah. is it fair for me to say that you know it is closer to Shakespeare than Faustus? It is, yeah. And uh, Tamburlaine would have been one of the first plays Shakespeare would have probably seen when he first yeah. came to London. They're both uh, about the same age, guys. But Christopher Marlowe just started a lot younger, and he died a lot younger. And was Shakespeare actually started relatively late, and he lived uh, to be. Not really a decent age, but a decent age at the time. And yeah, so Christopher Marlowe was already famous by the time, famous and dead by the time uh, Shakespeare <laughs> was really hitting the builds with the, all the Henrys and then eventually Richard III. But that was Richard III came out in 1895. Uh, Marlowe was already dead by then, uh, unfortunately. And um, he was probably murdered. Marlowe is a lot more of a, 
he's a lot more of a, a legendary figure. He was a spy. He was a, a, man, a humanist. He was more of an intellectual than Shakespeare. All that comes across. So Marlowian plays, they're, they're more intellectual. They are, because Shakespeare didn't have that upbringing. Uh, there were intellectuals, a lot more lats in them. There was a lot more science in them, especially in Dr. Faustus. Yes. Uh, but Marlowian characters are not at all like Hamlet's or, or these kind of existentialist characters that you would appear, that you would get with Shakespeare later on, or even in Richard III, which is a young Shakespeare, an early Shakespeare play. It's Richard III is already doubting at the end. It's like the kingdom for a horse and all that stuff. And none of that appears in, uh, um, that not, not too much appears in that, in, in my loving place, especially in Tampa Lane, which is just about a man who wants to conquer the world. Uh, Dr. Faust is the same thing. It's a man who wants to conquer the uh, dark magic world. These are all people who really, they strive for huge achievements, which you don't get in Shakespeare. It's usually Shakespeare got people who have a lot of weight on their shoulders and are kind of being dragged down by this often, as especially once again in Hamlet or as Romeo and Juliet. Um, so Marlowe Marlo is um, a bit more typical, I think, for the time, Renaissance. Uh, but yet he's got this unique sort of dark flair, especially with Dr. Faustus, that was just like, oh, my God, this is like this. This feels like almost like a, a Clive Barker, or Stephen King kind of uh, story, rather than a story written about the 1580s, 1590s. Yeah, it's awesome, guys. Uh, really, really recommend it. It's, it was very surprising. And very different to Shakespeare. I, uh, even Dr. Faustus had included comedy, but even the comedy wasn't too Shakespearean. It was also funny. It, I think he's an author in his own right. He's often overshadowed by And we should mention there's not as many extant plays by Marlowe. You well, know, yeah, we he also died. Shakespeare wrote a lot. So, yeah. yeah. Mar- uh, with, with Marlowe, we only have, am I right in saying seven plays? I think it's seven plays, yeah, and a yeah. few books of poetry and stuff, but it's like, oh, they're not, they're not even 100% sure if, if he wrote some of it or not. And of course, there's a whole theory that Shakespeare actually was Marlowe, that all those plays were written by, <laughs> written by Shakespeare. Um, I couldn't believe it when I when I read Faustus. I just couldn't believe that that could be Shakespeare. With Tamburlaine, no. if you told me, I would maybe. maybe say, well, maybe. But with with Faustus, no, it's impossible. Maybe, yeah. So yeah, guys, uh, check him out. Um, that's uh, all I want to mention. We go, we'll get more into him, and we're also going to include more Renaissance Renaissance uh, authors, including Ben Johnson and the like. So just keep in keep in part. That's, that's part it. of our Playboys episode. Is now divided into Shakespeare and. Renaissance, Renaissance, it's a Russian, what's the word again? Russian, Russian dolls are happening with, uh, you've got the Books Boys, the Bifanda Boys, the Playboys, the Renaissance. And don't forget, we also we also talked about the mysterious affair at Styles on Caper Captains, the, uh, the oh, Agatha Christie. Yes, exactly, yes, so we also got Agatha Christie. Thanks for mentioning that. There's a lot going on. PJ, shall we wrap up with our recommendations today? Hi, right, so what's your recommendation then? My recommendation, I, this isn't going to be much of a surprise to anyone. It's a, it's a Charles Dickens. Of course it Sketches is. Sketches by Boz. By oh. Boz, by the way, is Dickens. Um, so his early work, he, he went by that pseudonym of Boz before he started writing his full novels and you know, became known as himself as Charles yeah. Dickens. And his, his illustrator was Fizz. So it's Boz and Fizz. Um, sounds like a I don't know, kind of vaudeville act or something. But um, what we have here is, these are sketches, so they are not. Um, this is not a novel, okay? These are not even short stories. They they literally are just character sketches, yeah. sketches of couples, sketches of gentlemen, and certain types of situations around London. Now I mentioned before um, that when we when we when we spoke to Anne last month, 
I mentioned that Dickens would walk around London, at, you know, of an evening, and mm. all the characters that he saw informed his novels. And what what this is, sketches by Boz is essentially world building. So it's introducing you to the types of character archetypes that you're going to see in all the novels that are about to come. Mm. So setting it, the scene for everything. It's setting the scene. It's basically him practicing, and he was a very young author, so it wasn't really. He didn't have the maturity. It was just kind of, it's kind of very practicing yeah. how to become a proper realist, um, yeah, uh, writer. Wow. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, they're funny and they're witty. Obviously, they're not plot heavy because they're just a couple of pages at a time, you know. Mm-hmm. But they're just these these sketches of characters, and you you start to realize these are the kinds of people we're going to see in his in his actual novels. So, for anyone that does have that kind of interest in in Dickens, I would really recommend because uh, it is often overlooked. But it's a really really good collection of of uh, sketches. Great, awesome, and um, yeah, guys, uh, I actually recommend another realist author. So we're all about realism today. And I suppose it's because we've been talking so much about Balzac. I mentioned Benito Perez Galdós uh, earlier. So he's considered the Spanish equivalent of uh, Dickens, of Balzac, of Tolstoy, and that he is the big realist author in Spain and in the uh, Spanophonic con- uh, uh, continents, sorry, Spanophonic world. It's quite popular. He's not majorly popular in, in, in the Anglophone world, but he's slowly actually getting some recognition. What he has, it, but perhaps it's also because Benito Perez Galdós is not particularly original, maybe. So he wasn't the first realist author. He, he got a lot of influence from, um, from, as I said, Balzac in particular. And he didn't write his first book until 1870, having been born 1843. So Dickens already wrote sketches. And, and Oliver Twist by that time. Uh, but Spain always being a bit late, to be honest, was the trends. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not until the 1860s, more late 1870s, that 1880s even, that realism became a thing in Spain. And Benito Perez Galdós started that. And he's actually uh, was born in Gran Canaria. So the island I was born in, the same city. Uh-huh. So, so there you go. But he's considered by many the second most important novelist in Spanish literature. Beside, of course, Miguel Cervantes, author of Don Quixote. And now, when I visit you in Gran Canaria, hopefully soon enough, uh, we we're going to do the first ever uh, in-person books, boys, eh? Oh yes, that would be great, and I'd love to show you his house. I've been to Benito Perez Galdós's house, which is now a museum. Wow, and it's great, yeah. Um, anyway, that would be great, yeah. I, I love Benito Perez Galdós. I had to I had to read them at school. I went to school in Gran Canaria, but I was one of the few who actually loved his works. And I, I, I read the two books that, you know, I read the book basically that was told, I was told I had to read. And then I read a lot of other books. And by the time the second book um, came that I had to read, I already read that, you know, I didn't have to read. I was a big fan of him. Uh, but anyway, but he started writing 1870. So yes, he is basically imitating Dickens and Balzac. But anyway, but he's got this own unique flair as well his own stories i would say was a spanish setting uh there's a lot more catholicism involved inside like the spanish history so when balzac was mm-hmm. uh, portraying a parisian society and dickens english um uh, galdos wasn't only portraying spanish society but he also did a whole series of novels called los episodios nacionales which are 46 novels so almost Whoa. almost being as huge as the human comedy, uh, but they're a bit shorter than books. 
And the episodes nacionales, national episodes, are all about Spanish history, uh, the 19th in the 19th century, starting off with Trafalgar, the Battle of Trafalgar, uh, around 1803, I believe. So moving on to the end of that century. I love uh, characters appear in it, but it's not so much um, depicting a society and a city at the time as it is like the whole history in novel format. So people could just read the stories rather than like um, um, have to learn it in a dry sense. So anyway, sorry, I went on a bit about him, but I want to recommend uh, one of my favorite um, um, novels from his before he became a proper realist, which was in the 1880s. In the 1870s, he was still into his romanticism, even though it was way past yeah. its time. And I really like his early romanticist literature that he wrote in his uh, 20s. And one of my favorite novels is Doña Perfecta. And that's my recommendation for today, guys. It's um, it's it's romantic, but it's getting towards realism already in the sense of like it's about a marriage of convenience and how wrong it goes and how much the church ruins uh, the lives of uh, of these people in the novel. And Donna Perfecta is kind of like a bit ironic because she kind of has to be perfect. I mean, that's her name. That's an actual name in Spanish. But yes, Perfecta, whose name Perfecta also kind of has to be kind of perfect. And it's about pressure. But, um, realism is often about pressure. And again, it's in this case. But he's got just as much humor as Balzac and Dickens, if not even more, I find. So this makes Caldos sometimes an even more pleasant read than Okay, than Balzac I need to get reading Dickens. some of this. Yeah, this is your kind of stuff. You know, I already recommended it. Um, so yeah, in contrast, his latter novels uh, at the turn of the ni- 19th century towards the 20th century become very naturalist like a Zola. so it's not if you if you're if it's too much for you dean because it, it, it again it goes into like poor people and like people dying and stuff and becomes very gritty towards the end yeah yeah but uh, it's hard yeah. for me to take a recommendation because at the moment or at any given time i have about 30 books queued up on my shelf you know in order and i know when i'm reading what and it's very difficult to, to fit more stuff in you know well, guys but if you want a depiction of spain in the 19th century realist but also still kind of romantic um kind of still a kind of romantic sort of flair. It's Doña Perfecta. And if you want a more gritty, realist depiction, then his, his latter books um, are also great, but I just enjoy his earlier ones more. They have more humor, his early ones. I really enjoy mm-hmm. that. Cool. Guys, I think that's pretty much us. So look, let me just conclude by saying all the info, all the stuff that we do, whether you're looking for Patreon, whether you're looking for our social media, or you just want to you know, leave a comment, whatever you want to do, booksboys.com. That's your central portal for all our all our uh, kind of stuff. Uh, we're going to end with a song today, and now this is interesting because PJ doesn't know what we're going to end with. Yeah, um, but this is actually a song by PJ. Ah. Um, but you sent me some of your new stuff by my request to play, um, but I've not done that, PJ. Ah. Do you remember a song you recorded with myself back in 2013? Good lord! Called Dean and PJ sure have some sexy ice cream. Oh, I actually, I think I do, actually. Yeah. It's one wow. of the first songs we did together when we were doing Free Love Freeway. And you you sang it, you played guitar, you played harmonica, you did backing vocals. I joined you on the backing vocals, but it's 99% you. And uh, it's a funny little blues kind of parody, basically. And it's a nice. nice little ditty. And I thought I'd uh, remind you of that one, you know, because it's, it's long forgotten. Nice. Okay, cool. Thanks a lot for, for getting that out of the archives. 
Awesome. I've been I've been re- going through my hundreds of songs that I've been involved with to just to kind of find the my new album, which will come out eventually, called wow. The Dozen Most Listenable. So, you know, take out the garbage and here's the 10% that's left, you know. <laughs> wow, okay, okay. Well, looking forward to hearing that then. Awesome. So, guys, that's it. We will be back in about a month. Okay, guys. Take it easy, guys. See ya. was presented by The Dean and PJ Burke in association with Thaddeus Penguin Productions. Ah. This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, LonelyHeistOnTheMoors.org. If you would like to get in touch, you can email us at booksboys at hotmail.com or visit us at booksboys.com. The intro uses Driving in the 70s from the Of Soundtracks and Garage Bands EP by Trapdoor. And the outro uses Dog's Light by Bravo Max from the album of the same name. All music used is either pod safe or used with permission. If you'd like to support the show, click on the Amazon or Audible referral links on booksboys.com or go to patreon.com slash booksboys and get all of the Bufanda Boys bonus shows. Thank you kindly for listening to us. Please tell your friends, and come back next time for another episode of Books Boys. Read some books!
Remember, PJ, that song was from the Sexy Hair EP, and I did a I did a rap on that, and then we did a cover of Ricky Gervais' "Free Love Freeway." I don't even know what was going on there. Also, why is the show almost two hours long? What the hell? Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.